0: Hi, you're now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee. So without further ado, here he is. Good morning, Harvest. Happy Easter. Welcome to Easter service online. It's definitely not the way we want it to be doing this. Uh, but we're so glad, so thankful that the technology exists for us to gather together and bring our service into your home this way. You know, it's been one of the strangest Holy Weeks that I can remember. Uh, so many of the things that are familiar to me about this special week for the Christian, for the Christian people is just taken away from us. And so um, it's been really weird, and yet it's also been one of the richest Holy Weeks that I've ever had. Um, I hope that's been the case for you. Though we are a scattered church, through all of these means, we're able to at least worship separately together. You know, on Good Friday, we had a chance to reflect on the cross of Jesus Christ, where God demonstrated His great love for us in the sacrifice Jesus made on the cross. This morning on Easter, we're going to focus on the empty tomb and celebrate God's power demonstrated for us through the resurrection of Jesus, His rising from death to life. If you think about it, without Easter Sunday... There would be nothing good about Good Friday. It would just be a death, maybe a funeral of someone we admired and loved. But without Easter, there would be no real cause for celebration. This morning, I'd like us to consider two ways that the resurrection of Jesus sets us free. It gives us a real powerful freedom on two levels. First, it gives us a freedom from death. And second, It gives us a freedom for life. So let's look at the first thing, uh, freedom from death. What does it mean that the resurrection of Jesus frees us from death? About 30 years ago, uh, I was working at a hospital in Waukegan in the surgery department. And we were really busy one day. There were cases just stacking up in the OR. And so I was in the the prep room, um, busily cleaning instruments, preparing them for sterilization so they'd be ready for the next procedure. And I was probably working faster than I should have been. And as I was preparing some of these instruments, transferring them to the autoclave, I stuck myself uh, with one of the sharp instruments. And when I stuck myself, it broke through the glove, it broke through my skin, and I was bleeding. So I was a little concerned, and so I went to see my supervisor and I said, Hey, something happened while I was touching the instruments and she turned white. She went pale. And What she told me after that made me turn pale as well. She said that the patient that this batch of instruments had been used on was confirmed as HIV positive. Right away you hear something like that you think, well that was my death sentence. And i got to tell you the next two hours while I was waiting for what came next were probably two of the longest hours of my life. Uh, I confronted the reality of death, the fear was like a tangible thing for me. Now, I'll finish that story in a minute, but I share it because most days, especially if we're younger, we don't really think much about the end of life. We just think about the end of the day. And uh, this COVID-19 pandemic has stirred up all kinds of thoughts and fears relating to disease and death for most of us. You know, people's lives are very different from one another's. Some people's lives are comfortable and easy. Some people's lives are really hard. Some people's lives are really happy. Some people's lives are tragic and sad. But death is the one great equalizer. It doesn't matter what your life was like. It's inevitable. We will all have to face it at some point. And even when this COVID pandemic is over, the fear of death will still be a thing because none of us will dodge death unless Jesus returns. And so the fear of it looms over us. And I think one of the reasons that death is such a scary thing for us is because it signals the end of the only reality, the only life we've ever known and been certain of. That's why I think so many people love John 3.16. If you look at John 3.16, and I'm going to look at the ESV, There's a reason that this is the most famous verse in all of Scripture, the most well-known. It says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. One of the reasons that John 3.16 is so beloved is because it offers us hope of a life beyond this one. It tells us that God opened up the way for there to be life, for us to keep living even after this earthly life is done. We shouldn't ever underestimate how powerful that promise and that hope really is. Let me get back to my story about when I stuck myself with that instrument because that was 30 years ago. I'm still here. So uh, let me tell you how that story ended. In the two hours I was waiting... The fear of death was like a palpable thing. And I found myself instinctively, as a a newer Christian, just reciting John 3.16 over and over. And I will say, it gave me a pretty tremendous level of comfort. But if I'm honest, in the midst of that comfort, the real fear of death, the panic, gripped me in waves. And so I wrestled for two hours. And finally, the surgeon who had performed that surgery was out of his last procedure. He came into the room. And he looked over the panel of instruments that I'd been working with, and I can't tell you the relief I felt when he said, oh, that's one of them that I picked up to use and changed my mind, so I just laid it aside on the discard tray, and he didn't actually use that particular instrument in the procedure. I was so thankful for his good memory, and I was so thankful for the, the relief and the news that I was going to be okay. A later test confirmed that I had not been infected. But I've got to tell you, that event left a real mark on me. I think it's one of the closest times I've come to a brush with death where my own life, my the fragility of life, the shortness of life, confronted me so head on. You know, death and the fear of death are real and powerful. And I'll be honest, I can't prove to you that the words of John 3.16 are true. I can't prove to you that there's a life beyond this one or there's such a place as heaven. What I can say to you after nearly 40 years of being a Christian and walking with Jesus is that I still believe with all my heart the claims and the promises of that verse. I can't prove it to you, but even after serious, rigorous study, thought, reflection, traveling the world, seeing everything that's happening, It hasn't shaken at all my faith that I truly believe there is hope for us of a life beyond this life. And in the end, that's all we have as followers of Jesus is faith. There's very little that I can prove to anybody conclusively. And so one of the things that Jesus' resurrection frees us from is the fear of death. It's like getting that news from that surgeon when you think you're dead and you're told you're going to keep living a little longer. There's still more after what you thought was going to be the end. And the relief of that, the hope that that produces, the way it changes the way you live your life, it's profound. But when we look at Ephesians 2, verse 1, and I want you to look at that with me. We're going to look at it in the NIV. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Ephesus, and he says, as for you, and when he says you, he's not just talking about the church in Ephesus in particular, but all people who consider themselves Christ followers. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. See, physical death is not the only death that Jesus sets us free from. Before we ever die physically, we are already in a state of spiritual deadness. And this spiritual death is the result of what Paul says are transgressions and sins. Now, it's interesting that he uses two different words to describe what disqualifies us and what condemns us to spiritual death. The first word, transgressions, it translates a Greek word, paraptama, which include, in, in, amidst all the different meanings can include that active violation of a known standard. In other words, transgressions are when you know what is right and you choose to do something in violation of that. So it's what we might call sins of commission. And then there's hamartia. That's what he translates as sin. And that word, among other things, means missing the mark or falling short. It talks about not just the bad that we do, but the good that we fail to do where not only do our lives show rebellion against God, but also passivity, a failing to live the way that God wants us to. So it's easy to say, well, I haven't kicked any children today. I haven't stolen any money from a bank. I haven't done all these things. And you're probably right. We haven't done a lot of the heinously bad things. But there's so much good we also fail to do. So much response to God and the world around us that we're passive about. And what he says is both forms of sin and disobedience and rebellion condemn us to a state of spiritual death. Long before we ever reach the event of physical death, apart from Christ, we are spiritually dead. Now here's the interesting thing. Physical death and spiritual death are similar but actually very different. Physical death is an event, but spiritual death is a state. And it's also something that even after we become Christians, there are echoes of it that remain and linger in our lives. And spiritual death is far more serious than physical death. In the Gospels, it records that Jesus was able to heal diseases, and in fact, on one occasion, he even raised his friend Lazarus from death. He stood outside of Lazarus's grave and shouted, Lazarus, come out! And with just a spoken command, Jesus reversed the power of physical death. So you might reason that if it's that easy to reverse death and create life, why not? Why have to go to the cross? Why not just speak a word and forgive everyone? Because spiritual death is such a serious condition, such a real problem, that the only way Jesus could reverse it was to satisfy the righteousness, holiness, and justice of God through the sacrifice He made on the cross. It was a level of death that could not be reversed with a simple word. And that should tell us something, because if physical death can be reversed with just a command, how serious is it that to reverse our condition of spiritual deadness, Jesus had to die himself? We see expressions of spiritual death all over the world and in our lives. Even after we become Christians, though we are raised to life, the echoes of that spiritual deadness still linger in our lives. You think about the death of motivation, where you just don't feel it in you to do what is right, to do what is godly. The death of hope, where you've just given up. The death of belief, where once you had faith that came so easily, and now it just feels too hard to maintain that kind of belief, and you just give up. What about the death of relationships? people you thought you would love forever and you just drift apart and even become enemies or the death of innocence where you once looked at the world a certain way but now you can't. You're jaded, you're cynical. What about that moment where we are triggered by something and we feel the heat and fire of rage rising and we give into it rather than suppress it? Where it feels good to just be enraged with anger And as a result, we do a lot of damage to ourselves and to other people. Another form of that spiritual death is the passivity and selfishness that robs us of the full life, the new life that God intends for us. So even after we become Christians, this spiritual death doesn't completely leave our lives, but the echoes remain It is this spiritual death and even the echoes of the old life which Jesus, through his rising to life, continues to give us hope for. If I ended there, that would be a really bleak place to leave off. But Ephesians 2 continues. When you look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 to 5, look at what it says. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. You know, when something bad is happening, when we get bad news, we instinctively expect that after a little time has passed, someone will come to our rescue. Eventually, this too will pass. Even if there's no reason to believe that, there is this inborn human instinct to expect and hope for deliverance when we're in a bad place. But why is that? Why should rescue be expected? I mean, you know that most of us have been in this lockdown mode for a while. And in the midst of it, aren't you already, we're only a couple weeks in, I'm so ready for this to be over. I'm so ready for life to return to normal. And part of the way I'm enduring this is knowing that it's going to be over soon. That eventually, we're not going to live like this forever. But imagine what if this current state, of social isolation and distancing, of not being able to go to the stores and hug people and shake hands. What if this never changed? What if this reality just became our new normal forever? There was no relief, no change. This is it forever. Can you imagine the despair and hopelessness that would overtake you? And yet, strangely, time and time again, when trouble visits our lives... Help does come, and that's a pointer, a reflection to the fact that the God who oversees the universe is a rescuing God. He does not allow us to stay in our misery forever, but He has a heart and He has the power to create a way for us to move forward. In fact, the ESV translates these verses. Verse 4 begins with the words, But God, being rich in mercy. One preacher Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones actually observed, he commented that uh, those two words at the beginning of verse 4, but God, could be an encapsulation or summary of the whole gospel. That while the bleak reality of our spiritual death could have been the end of the story, that we violated God, we disobeyed, we stood in sin, and that should have been the end. That he because he was rich in mercy, filled with love and kindness and grace, made a way for us. But God. In other words, what he's saying is, Paul said, though we were dead in our sins and should have stayed that way, but God intervened. He would not let that situation remain, but he did something about it. You know, the good news is that God has made us Alive with Jesus. And His resurrection, His rising from death, makes possible our own rising, even from spiritual death, which is more serious than physical death. The more seriously we take the problem and the gravity of spiritual death and sin, the more joyful and thankful we will be when we hear the good news of the gospel. In other words, for people who don't take the bad news seriously or find other convenient ways to lift the burden of sin and guilt off of themselves, they will never understand why we celebrate Easter with such joy. The good news is only good news if you believe the bad news. So Jesus in his resurrection sets us free from death. But he also sets us free for life. Look at Romans 6, 4. I've, I've just spent so much time this week soaking in Romans 6. It's such a powerful, beautiful passage of scripture. And here's Romans 6, verse 4 in the New Living Translation For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. I love that last phrase, new lives. That's God's call for us, is not just to escape death, but to live new lives. Jesus offers us freedom from the fear and the consequences of death, but he also frees us for something. There is a new life which he wants to give us that we're supposed to live in exchange for the old life. And think about the old life where death, spiritual death, had such consequences for us. The death of hope and innocence and relationships and all that, that's what creates the pain and brokenness that every one of us carries around. And Jesus says, that is not the life I want for you and anyone else. And so he makes a pathway for us to live a new life in exchange for the old broken one. But what if, He released us from the sin, the power, and and the consequences of sin and death, but He didn't release us for something else. In other words, what if He forgave us, set us free from death, but He didn't set us free for life? And we just continued, after being forgiven, to live exactly the way we always did. No change, nothing new. I guess what I'm trying to say is, what if we were unchained, but also unchanged? I know that sounds like a clever play on words, but it's a powerful idea if you think about it. What would it be like if we were set free on the outside, but on the inside we were still the people we always were? A recent report issued by the U.S. Sentencing Committee, or Commission, I'm sorry, stated that nearly 64% of violent offenders who were released from federal prison in 2005 were rearrested for a new crime within the next eight years. What they're really trying to say is that our our prisons almost have like a revolving door in the front. People get out and they come right back in. At an alarming rate, 64% recidivism. Now, I know we can get bogged down in the politics of that. I certainly think that figure... Points to a real and desperate need for reform in the penal and judicial systems and in society. But I raise that example as an illustration not of the, the jail system, the prison system, but because it points to something true about human nature, not just for inmates or convicted felons, but for all of us. It's not enough to be set free from the consequence of the bad we've done, because underlying every bad word or choice or action is a fundamental, essential corruption of the soul that we call sin. Let me give you an idea that's kind of relevant and current right now. People are hoarding toilet paper and trying to sell it online for like eight times the regular price. Why do people do that? It's universally shunned behavior now. Everybody looks down on people like that, but why would anyone get the idea that that's an okay thing to do? Behind that kind of panic buying or, or hoarding and gouging, is a fundamental underlying sin of selfishness. What about some of these stories we're hearing about um, racism? And racism has been a thing in the world forever. Each time there's a new thing happening in the world, some form of violence and racism and abuse will come out. Underlying that behavior, those words and attitudes and choices, is an underlying fundamental sin of hatred. What I'm trying to say is that the bad things we do are not just the result of brokenness and pain, though those things are there, but they're also the result of evil and darkness that's inside of us. And we can try our best to control and restrain bad behavior through consequences, through teaching and training and reform. And for a while, I think we can change our outward behavior to an extent and for a time, But mankind has no cure for the underlying soul sickness of sin. You know, for years I was told that profanity was bad, but when I was a non-Christian, I used so much profanity. And after I became a Christian, I trained myself constantly to use replacement words and not try to swear. But it wasn't until the Holy Spirit grabbed hold of me and I walked with Jesus actively that the profanity left my heart more and more. I wish I could say I'm completely free of that, and I don't think I am. But I can tell you that there was the controlling of my tongue and there was the controlling of my spirit and my heart. And I only had power over one of those things. Only God can actually transform the person underneath. Who we are in our soul, deep down, and that darkness and corruption and evil that is in us, that brokenness and pain that keeps us doing bad things, only God has a cure for that. The best we can do is work hard to manage and change our behavior. I love two Corinthians five seventeen. It's such a hope-filled verse. It says, "Therefore." If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Here's the good news of the Gospel. God doesn't just change us on on the outside. He doesn't just give us a new set of behaviors to train ourselves for. But He begins the work of literally recreating or remaking us. You know... It's it's one thing to do a makeover, a remodel, where we just put a fresh layer of paint on something. It's another to demo the whole thing and rebuild the house. And I believe that's what God does for us. He doesn't just put a coat of Jesus paint over who we used to be, but He begins the process of actually recreating or remaking us in the image of Jesus so that somewhere deep down, And that foundational level, the the sub-basement that underlies every bad choice and word and attitude and deed, that sin which corrupts and kills us spiritually, he begins to make that core of us new and alive again. That is such a life-giving, hope-filled message. And that's actually what we're celebrating this morning on Easter. You know, there is a, a poem called Lockdown that's gone Viral. It was written on March 13th by a Franciscan priest named Brother Robert Hendrick. And a lot of people have been sharing this, and I want to read that for you as I close this message. Here's what it says. Yes, there is fear. Yes, there is isolation. Yes, there is panic buying. Yes, there is sickness. Yes, there is even death. But... They say that in Wuhan, after so many years of noise, you can hear the birds again. They say that after just a few weeks of quiet, the sky is no longer thick with fumes, but blue and gray and clear. They say that in the streets of Assisi, people are singing to each other across the empty squares, keeping their windows open so that those who are alone may hear the sounds of family around them. They say that a hotel in the west of Ireland is offering free meals and delivery to the housebound. Today, a young woman I know is busy spreading flyers with her number throughout the neighborhood so that the elders may have someone to call on. Today, churches, synagogues, mosques, and temples are preparing to welcome and shelter the homeless. The sick, the weary. All over the world, people are slowing down and reflecting. All over the world, people are looking at their neighbors in a new way. All over the world, people are waking up to a new reality, to how big we really are, to how little control we really have, to what really matters, to love. So we pray and we remember that, yes, there is fear, but there does not have to be hate. Yes, there is isolation, but there does not have to be loneliness. Yes, there is panic buying, but there does not have to be meanness. Yes, there is sickness, but there does not have to be disease of the soul. Yes, there is even death, but there can always be a rebirth of love. Waked to the choices you make as to how to live now. Today, breathe. Listen behind the factory noises of your panic. The birds are singing again. The sky is clearing. Spring is coming, and we are always encompassed by love. Open the windows of your soul, and though you may not be able to touch across the empty square, sing. I think that is a beautifully and well-written poem. And I'm not a hater. I don't have a criticism of that poem, really. But I feel as a pastor, as your pastor, I need to help you understand that poem in context. It does a beautiful job of honestly describing how things are and how things could be and are becoming. But I think, in a world that tends to be too optimistic about the inherent goodness of human nature or our ability, to make ourselves better people, we have to be very clear to remember that the new life, the real fullness of life, the whole life of love and selflessness to which God calls each one of us as Christ followers, that life cannot be gained simply by inspiration or instruction. Any of us who have ever raised children knows you can't just inspire or instruct We try our best, but in the end, unless God does a deep and profound work of transformation, of changing that inner resistance in us, that part of us in our soul, which was dead, until that comes alive, we can hear the most inspiring examples and stories of the goodness of others, but that will be short-lived. For a while, the best of us will rise, but eventually we'll get sick of everybody. We'll get jaded, bitter, selfish again. We'll want to retreat away from the world and be done with everything and everyone. The newness of life which God calls us to won't be had because we've been inspired or instructed. Not that alone, but because we've been transformed through the relationship with Jesus. That is the only way that we become new and alive where we are once old and dead. This Easter, I don't want to just inspire you with a better version of who we can become if we try very hard or catch a vision. Those things are important. We do cast vision, and we are called to obedience. But more than anything, we have to submit ourselves regularly to the shaping influence of Jesus. Apart from our relationship with Him, we are going to way overestimate our own goodness our own kindness, our own love for others. What about you? Do you feel Jesus setting you free and raising you to real life from the inside out? If not, that would be a really important thing to ask Him for. And do you feel that the burden, the heaviness of the fear and reality of death is oppressing you right now? that you're nervous everywhere you go. If that's the case, you can ask Jesus to free you from both the fear of physical death and the power and consequences of spiritual death. He alone has the real power to do anything about those things. In a moment, our praise team will perform a beautiful song. It's called, Yet Not I, The Christ in Me. You know, our freedom from death, our freedom for life, those things are not made possible by our obedience and effort alone. We have to remember that they are made possible by the grace and work of Jesus in us. So as the team sings the song, let the song minister to you. Let the team minister to you. The lyrics will be posted, so if you want to sing along, please feel free to do that. But if you just need to let them sing to you and for you as that song ministers, I would encourage you also to take some time to reflect on whether you sense that Jesus alone is your true hope to be set free from death and set free for life. So let's listen to that song and let's invite God to probe us and to examine us and encourage us and call us to new commitments. I want to invite you to join me as I offer a word of blessing, a benediction for you as a church. Harvest, we're all scattered, and for most of us, our world has shrunk to just the people that we happen to live with. For some of us, we even find that our world has shrunk to just ourselves. That's a hard thing, but in a weird way, it's also a gift from God, because now the number of people with whom you have to learn to practice and live out your faith is smaller, May the spiritual deadness that still clings so stubbornly to us be banished by the real presence of Jesus as He enters your home and causes to rise in your home peace and real love, real confidence and the banishing of the fear of death. And may Jesus enter your home and your heart in such a way that in every place where you're tempted to just remain the old person you always were, He would begin to stir up in you, to create in you a newness of life so that you won't just be remodeled, but you will be remade into a whole new person through the power of Jesus. May this be God's blessing and gift to you this Easter Sunday in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. God bless you, Harvest. It's been really good to worship with you. Thanks for tuning in and participating with us this morning. We'll see you soon. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.